I can't believe I ate that whole thing. Welcome to Episode 3 of Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago food audio podcast produced by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard award-winning food journalist and video maker of Sky Full of Bacon, key ingredient for the Chicago Reader, newly writing at Serious Eats Chicago, and other places with very smart editors. Tiki was a kitschy craze from the 40s and 50s that went away, came back briefly in the 90s, and is about to make its biggest splash in Chicago in decades. In this episode, we'll hold a Tiki Symposium, exploring why there's more substance to the subculture than you might expect, featuring Paul McGee of Chicago's new Three Dots and a Dash and others who know their Whitco Easter Island decor. Who's the most respected and beloved barbecue man in the state of Illinois? It's nobody from Chicago. I go to downstate Murfreesboro to answer that question. And I'll call up a couple of friends on the phone to find out how you sum up Chicago's restaurant scene in one magazine issue. And what an L.A. expat likes to eat when he visits home. So forget the hot dogs at Pink's. This episode's coming from the bottom of our pure beef hearts. So one of the reasons I started doing an audio podcast was not only for something new to play with for myself, but also to create a platform for other people to play around with audio and not have to build an audience from scratch. So I'm excited to say that this episode will feature the first piece produced by somebody else for Airwaves Full of Bacon. Roger Kamholtz has written and shot pictures for Serious Eats, Chicagoist, and a little for me back in the day at Grub Street, and you'll hear his Tiki Symposium later in the show. But first... I'm going to make some phone calls to see what other people I know are up to in the world of food. This is Lisa. Hi, Lisa. This is Mike Gebert. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Good thing you called. I wasn't supposed to call you because I would have completely forgot. <laughs> <laughs> this is Lisa Seamus, who is the dining editor of CS, Chicago Social, and of Front Desk. So you have your restaurant issue out. Yeah. And what did you write of that? 90%, 100%? 100%. my fifth time doing so. I believe it's my fifth time of writing these. So why don't you farm any of this out to anybody? Just you know, I guess because you know, I put together the entire lineup of what it's going to be, so I've already kind of mapped it out. So at that point, you, point you've taken it so far. I think one voice is better than something like this. <laughs> but it also means you're someone who has now pronounced on the entire restaurant scene uh, from, from start to finish. Gary, now that you put it that way. So tell me, what is what is the state of the food scene 2013? What do you think is the big thing you got from writing all about it? Well, I, I after I wrote it all and I went back and did my um, intro for the piece, and basically what I said there is that there really isn't just uh, one trend. Like in previous years, you know, all the new restaurants were, you know, Edison bulbs or it was communal tables or, you know, years ago, small plates. But I think what I found this year is, Really range from somewhere like Grace, uh, you know, very fine dining, high end and expensive, to somewhere like a fat rice, which is a type of cuisine that I never tried before. I'm very down to earth. So I think for me, if I had to say one trend, it's chefs are doing restaurants that are very personal to them. So I think that's 
would be the trend, which, but, which means we're seeing a lot of really different restaurants in the end. So what would you describe as some of these personal restaurants besides what you just named? Um, well, there's something like La Serena Clandestina, where John Mannion taps into time that he spent living in Brazil, so it kind of reflects his personal story. Um, and Belly Q, or really all of Bill Kim's restaurants are, are reflective of, of him. Um, then you have somewhere like Elizabeth, um, where she, for a long time before it became trendy, has been into foraging, and that's a big part of, of her restaurant. Um, so those are, and, and then Carriage House, too, um, where the chef there, you know, he spent, he grew up in, in South uh, Carolina, and the food is reflective of that. So it's, instead of trying to figure out what the public wants to eat, they're tapping into what they love and are passionate about and what's important to them and putting that on the plate instead. See, I do kind of think that's a big change from the year before, which was very much these giant restaurants, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the perfect restaurant of, of a year ago was, you know, like an aircraft hangar with a wood-burning oven in it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it seemed like we kind of got away from that. I mean, even one of the bigger ones that opened still called itself the Little Goat, so... Right, right. I, I think people just want I don't necessarily want to sit in those big, trendy, to me, they're kind of like Las Vegas-style restaurants. I think they're, you know, great in Las Vegas because that's what you want when you go there. But for me, outside of a place like that, I don't, I don't want to be sitting in a big, trendy restaurant. Um, and I think a lot of other diners are kind of getting tired of that, too. Now, you write about a bunch of chefs that you like in it. Who would you say is somebody right now who is underrated, is still kind of doesn't get as much attention as, as you wish they got? Mm, well, I'm a big fan of Matt Troost over at Three Aces, um, but I think he, he does get attention, I hope, but I think he does some really terrific things there, and the fun thing is that it, it's, it's in this punk rock bar, so you, you don't expect it, but I, I, I think he has a fine dining background, but there he's been able to really um, have expand and kind of just do whatever he wants. I think um, it's been fun to watch him grow um, over the years. I think it's been open two years, maybe. Um, one that I picked out as well was um, Ashley Oban. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Um, at Wood in, in Boys Town, had really terrific meals there too. So hopefully, um, more people are going there and trying some of his food. Yeah, it seems like Three Aces at least is known to kind of the foodie crowd, but I would say Wood uh-huh. is, is still under the radar. I think so too, but it shouldn't. It shouldn't be. It was just beautiful. I mean, every plate was tasty. Looked really pretty. Um, price um, is something I'm always aware of. And the, you know, the price range was, I thought, great for the value and you know, pretty a pretty space as well, kind of casual and but still pretty. Um, I, I felt like they didn't cheap out on anything, um, so that was nice to be in a situation like that. And fortunately, it was in a, in a neighborhood I used to live in, but have since moved away. So I would have been much happier if it would have been in my own backyard, but um, not that far. Um, so when do you start working on next year's restaurant issue? Well, pretty much started already. I, I, whenever I dine out, I'm, I try and be really good about, you know, taking a menu or printing one out before I go and um, making notes on the menu um, that hopefully remind me when I'm sitting down to write this um, of things that I really liked and stood out for me. And sometimes I draw little pictures that won't win any awards, but I can kind of use those to bring back the memory as well. So it, it starts all year round, and I just I have these. Um, I'm, I'm really weirdly organized so I just have a folder I just throw them all in and then I just open it up and I sit, sit down and start thinking about what I want to include 
Well, I have to say, I've been to a couple of the meals that you wrote about, uh, like uh, Big Jones, the, the mm-hmm. Lee, Lee Brothers thing, and I did not notice you being such a secret spy <laughs> through the whole meal. So uh, you're at least subtle about it. I try to be, and then I get lazier as the evening progresses and sloppier, and, um, but hopefully I get enough things down that I'll, that'll trigger some kind of memory. And Like I said, the little drawings sometimes really help, just what ingredients that were in there that kind of stood out for me, and then it might go from there. So, yeah, I'm trying to get better. I didn't, for a long time, I always just thought I would remember, but I, I don't. So now I've just become more realistic and smart about how I approach these. I mean, I've tried the taking photos, but I just, it's just, it's not the same. It's kind of, you know quick off the top of my head words about a specific dish or an ingredient or maybe as a chef came by to talk about a dish I'll make sure try and wrote down what he said I just don't think you know everybody else is snapping photos that that doesn't work for me um, so it's not an option for me to just have a bunch of photos and think that's going to summon up the words of why I like something more than somewhere else well, and I think food's a first impression kind of thing too. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's when you're honest before you've started sort of thinking. I should have liked this more than I did, so I'm going to start right. praising it more. And you know, I don't want to insult the chef and all that, but you know, whatever whatever phrase popped into your head right as you ate mm-hmm. it is probably pretty true. Yeah, I think so. It's 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 worked it's worked for me so far. So unless if I come up with a better system, it's the one that that I rely on. So, anything you're looking forward to, particularly? Coming up? Mm, definitely Italy because I, I haven't been to the one in New York. I hate to say, but I'm 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 excited to go there. I think if you've been to the one in New York, correct? Yeah, and it, you know, it it is a food court that transcends food courts. That would be mm-hmm. my my view of it. <laughs> I love food courts. Whenever I travel, I go to markets, you know, in Spain or wherever. I, am. I just love that feeling. So I'm hoping that they are able to capture that. That it's not touristy or not touristy, but not kitschy in a bad way, so I'm hopeful that it's going to be as cool as I think it's going to be. Jason Kessler. Hi, Gabbard. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you for asking. You are the author of The Kessler Report for Food Republic, The Nitpicker for Bon Appetit, and you are newly on Food Network's uh, death list. I am public enemy number one. The reason for that is that you just wrote a piece uh, predicting some upcoming shows that the Food Network might do in in uh, 2016. You know, I gotta say, Is It Poisonous is a brilliant idea for a show. And it's just not that far from some of these survival shows that they have now. That's so thing, is that I think a lot of those shows that I made up could actually be real. Someone's pitching them right now, yeah. You were a Chicagoan. Yes, born and bred, fourth generation, raised out in the suburbs in Buffalo Grove, and I will be a Chicagoan until the day I die, despite the fact that I currently live in Los Angeles. Culturally, what's the difference between eating eating in Chicago and eating in L.A. for you? The size of the people. <laughs> and, their, and their lack of plastic surgery, I'm sure, too. Yeah, I mean, you, you eat in Chicago and, you know, people are, are enjoying what they eat and they're not looking all around the dining room and, you know, nobody's trying to impress each other. I mean, I, I guess that's a, a broad, broad generalization um, because I'm sure that on Rush Street, everybody's trying to impress everybody. But, uh, you know, it's, I feel like eating in L.A. is a bit of an ordeal sometimes, whereas eating in Chicago, people just want to give you a good meal. 
and your servers aren't likely to be actors trying to suss out if you can cast them in something and you know the chefs want to give you a good complete meal and sometimes in LA I don't find that we're all enablers here I mean I I will say uh, in Chicago I'm the smallest person uh, in my family and in Los Angeles I'm the biggest person amongst my group of friends you you were back in Chicago you came back for a wedding Yes. What did you look forward to here in Chicago? I mean, for me, Chicago is all about hot dogs and pizza. So I made sure to stock up on as, as much of each as I could. So uh, I'm a Lou Malnati's guy, always have been, always will be. Um, but my hotel in the city was not close enough to one to allow me to go there. So I actually got to kind of expand my, my Chicago pizza range and I had my first Paisano's pizza, um, which was delicious, I will say. And then my friends and I all, all went to Northwestern, so Giordano's is near and dear to our hearts because they had a half-off Monday night special that college <laughs> love. Uh, so we all had dinner at Giordano's. Um, and I got to say, I'm, I'm a deep dish guy, not a stuffed guy, but for stuffed, Giordano's does a nice job. Yeah, I was wondering, was there anything that you were just, like, crushed by when you come back and have it? And it's like, oh, my God, this was terrible. Why did I eat this? Oh, right, it was cheap. Yeah, you know, sadly, there is one thing, which is, I don't know if you've ever been out to Michael's. There's one in Highland Park, and there's one in Buffalo Grove. And I went to the Michael's. I went out to visit my family, and uh, I love their chicken euros. I've always loved their chicken euros. And somehow it's just, it's not as good as I remember it being. It's just, I don't know, it was a solid B minus from what I remembered. Do you think you changed or it changed? I think it's a little bit of both, Mike. I definitely stopped at Superdog, although the one in the suburbs, not the one right on the, the border of the city. Um, and that was, that's as good as, as it always has been. I feel like a super dog doesn't change. I stopped it at Portillo's with my friends because it was close. And even though I have one out here, there's one in Orange County. Uh, I still went with my friends and, and had a great time. Um, you know, it's Portillo's is the only chain in my life that I feel like also gets kind of street cred as a legit Chicago place. And the combo from Portillo's, I think, is is kind of incomparable to me. I don't think I've ever had a better one. Combo, like, combo being uh, beef and sausage combo. Right. Um, I also I hit Heaven on Seven twice. Really? Uh, yeah, man, I love that place. Um, I also went out to uh, Sukasa in this in the suburbs out in Vernon Hills. Are you familiar with, with Sukasa at all? No, that was the one I didn't know when you were saying what uh, what you'd been to. Um, and that's that's Japanese Sukasa with T-S-U. Yes, it's not, not makes... your house in, uh, in Spanish. Right. It's, yeah, T-S-U-K-A-S-A. And it's a Japanese teppanyaki place, Japanese kind of tabletop steakhouse. And I don't know if you're aware of this, Mike, but... They they have golden shrimp and, and golden sauce, which is a, a Chicago thing, but a lot of people don't know it as a Chicago thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, tell me about it. There's, I, I, It's like almost impossible to describe. It's basically this egg custard, this like sweet egg custard that they steam on top of shrimp or scallops or kind of any seafood you want it on. And 
it's the best. Like your heart automatically starts to clog. It's terrible for you. And they will not release the recipe. It's it's some sort of, I think, Japanese rice wine vinegar and egg yolk and uh, in sugar. It's it's amazing. It's like it's this melt in your mouth, egg yolky, beautiful topping. So is it one of those things that was completely invented in America, seeming for by Japanese people trying to figure out what do Americans like? Oh, they like lots of sugar and egg. I would assume so because I've I've never seen it literally anywhere else, and it, this might even be a thing that hasn't made it into the city yet. It might just be a Chicago suburb thing, but I've had it at a few different places in the suburbs. Um, so if you see golden shrimp on the menu anywhere, order it. Wow, I'm going to start looking for it. Yeah. In my mind, Chicago stopped changing in 2004 when I left. You know, the minute the minute I drove my tiny crappy car out of town is the moment where it stopped forming in my mind. So I, I want to go back to those years when I'm back in town usually. Although I did, I did stop at Big Star and enjoyed it. And there's a ton of places I'd love to get to. I'd love to try Longman and Eagle. And, uh, you know, one thing that I, I love going back for, uh, which is old favorite, is, is Greek food, which I cannot get out here in L.A. So I, I love hitting up Piriali and Glenview and going to Pegasus downtown. And, you know, it's, it's funny that out here, the few Greek places we do have advertise that their pita is flown in from Chicago. <laughs> Who knew that we were? Yeah. I wonder what bakery that is. I don't even know what the, what the dominant pita would be in town, but uh, apparently they're doing a business on the West Coast. They are shipping. By the time you listen to this, Three Dots and a Dash, the long-awaited River North Tiki Bar by former Whistler bartender Paul McGee may finally have opened its doors. The project has had its fair share of delays after first being announced last summer, but for any devoted fan of Tiki, Three Dots and a Dash promises to be well worth the wait. I recently got a glimpse of McGee's grand vision when he toured me around the cavernous space, which is in the basement below Bub City and is large enough to host 125 guests. At the time, the bar was in the final stages of its elaborate build-out. Huge mirrors had just been installed along the ceiling over the long main bar, above a white onyx bar top and stools that had been salvaged from the old Trader Vic's in the Gold Coast. Like many of the people who will flock to Three Dots in a Dash, I'm sort of familiar with tiki culture. The colorful shirts, the complex drinks, the kitschy South Pacific decor. But I've always been a bit hazy on its origins. In addition to checking out the space, I wanted to talk with McGee about what Tiki was all about and why he had chosen it to be the subject of his new bar. To add to the discussion, I had brought along Rob Christopher, author, filmmaker, and Chicago's contributor, who has written extensively about Tiki cocktails, as well as the reasons behind the abrupt closing of Trader Vic's a few years ago. As I discovered at the occasional Tiki nights McGee would host at the Whistler, rum looms very large in the world of Tiki drinks. So also with us was Chicago-based rum expert Edward Hamilton, 
who spent years living in the Caribbean researching the spirit, and now imports several rare varieties into the U.S. After checking out the bar, the four of us walked over to McGee's office in the neighboring building to talk about the invention of tiki culture, the cocktails themselves, and what we can expect from three dots and a dash. Well, thank you guys for joining me. Uh, first off, I wanted to just talk about the history of tiki because I think there's probably a lot of people who have an idea of what it is just because it's out there in the culture and people have heard of it, but also I think misconceptions. So maybe just each one of you could talk a little bit about what the history of the culture is. So Rob, why don't you go first? <laughs> okay, well, um, at least in America, the history of tiki probably dates back to 1846 when uh, Melville published his first novel, which was called Taipi, which was kind of a escapist uh, story about uh, being marooned in the South Seas and was a big hit. It was actually the biggest hit of his career. Um, so that kind of uh, set in motion Americans' obsession with exotic places. Then in the 30s, you had a couple uh, restaurateurs slash bartenders, uh, Don Beach, also known as Don the Beachcomber, and his uh, friendly arch rival, uh, Trader Vic, who both created restaurants, bars, where you could enter into this mythical tiki land to escape from your kind of boring humdrum existence. And uh, it kind of reached its peak in the 50s and early 60s. Tiki started to decline once we got involved in Vietnam because suddenly it wasn't so much fun to, you know, go to a tiki uh, tropical environment. It fell out of favor for a long time and then Possibly due to the uh, revival of lounge in the mid-90s, people started to take a closer look at the, at the tiki drinks. Uh, Jeff Berry published a lot of uh, books and articles on the subject of the drinks, and here we are today. Ed? We'll mention Jeff Berry the way I understand it, and maybe the story varies as much as tiki does, but uh, he was chronicling these things as a writer, uh, copywriter, uh, proofreader in Southern California and in his spare time he went to bars and there were typically a lot of bars around the movie studios and around the, the people in the culture and uh, he saw the Tiki era as something that was dying and wanted to document it and really believed that in 10 years it was going to be gone uh, certainly by the turn of the century he said, I never dreamed it was going to be what it is today or that people were going to have an interest or anyone would ever want to buy my book after the first edition and now he's fully immersed in it and uh, not quite earning a living doing tiki. <laughs> Paul, my background I always think about tiki cocktails and when I think about tiki cocktails I think about Donna Beachcomber, obviously the, the forefather of Tiki Cocktails uh, started it out in 34 in Hollywood, um, moved across the street in 37. That's when uh, Mr. Bergeron uh, came down and visited him and uh, saw that the place was a success and, and said, you know, uh, Vic being the, the businessman, saw, saw a market for it and, and changed uh, Hinky Dinks, his little place in, uh, in Oakland, uh, into this kind of 
homage, if you will, <laughs> to uh, to Don the Beachcomber. He he lived the lifestyle, if you will. Like he he took some time off and, and traveled around the world and uh, and came back to the states with this this whole kind of um, uh, he wanted to to really show people what what things were like in, in these other parts of the country that you weren't obviously ready to or weren't available to see mm-hmm. on a regular basis. I mean, again, in the 1930s, 1920s, you weren't able to really just hop on a plane and go to these real exotic locales. So, um, you know, that, that was... That idea of escape yeah. was a lot more appealing back then. <laughs> for, sure, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I spent quite a bit of time in the Caribbean, and I can tell you from experience that if you sit around in a bar built of bamboo with thatched roof, uh, you're going to have all kinds of little insect droppings and things dropping into your plate and your drink uh, <laughs> as you sit there. That's part of the you know, animals or insects and ants and other things live in that thatch, and it's deteriorating all the time. And it's not quite as uh, romantic as it seems in a tiki bar uh, where everything's somewhat more sterile. But uh, who doesn't want to sit on a tropical island and have a nice cold rum drink served to them? And when you combine things like coconut and rum and a few other spices, how can you go wrong? (laughs) But part of the success of the rum, and we associate rum with tiki, and there are other liquors in tiki, some tiki drinks, uh, because all these guys recognized you had to serve everybody. But the rum really was the focus. But rum is the most diverse of all the distilled spirits. So when you say rum, you've got a huge palate to work with. Uh, whiskey has got some variations. There's good whiskey, there's bad whiskey, there's old and aged. And, but the general character, if you put a glass of whiskey in front of someone, one of you guys that knows drinks, you'll say, oh, that's whiskey. But when you get to rum, it's a huge palette uh, from basic sugarcane spirits, uh, things made from fresh juice all the way through molasses and then aged, colored, filtered, uh, different styles, different places. Uh, some of it people don't even recognize as rum because it is so varied. So you've got all these different things that you can put together, put them into a tiki drink, put it into a nice mug, uh, serve it with a beautiful woman, and what could be better? I think I think because like especially when you're talking about whiskey and um, so many spirits are are so regulated as to what what does the makeup have to be and how long does it have to be aged and what type of barrel. It's like with rum. You can pretty much do whatever you want within within certain parameters, but you know it is kind of like a, one of these renegade spirits where you can you feel like putting a little bit of this in there. Absolutely. I think one of the great gifts that uh, Don Beach and Trader Vic gave was this concept of blending different kinds of rums together in a drink to create a brand new flavor that you couldn't get from any one rum. So, like for example, if you were to make a mai tai today, you might. You might combine a Martinique rum with a Jamaican rum to give it a, an amazing flavor profile that a single rum wouldn't be wouldn't be able to give you. About the only thing that everybody really agrees on that I see in Tiki is that it did start in California with those two guys and then it expanded from there. One of the biggest Tiki bars in the country closed uh, just a few years ago in Ohio. And I think the idea of the big boom, the, the big wooden beams, and the uh, tiki mugs, uh, the carvings, really transports you 
from wherever you are, whether you're in Ohio or Southern California, to an exotic place, and then throw in a large dash of dose of rum. <laughs> you're <laughs> well, almost I mean, there. <clears throat> you know, some of these tiki palaces had actual floor shows with like mm. dancers and you know fire jugglers, and you know it was like kind of like dinner theater. And right, it was a, dinner theater. Yeah, and the Maikai. Uh, down in Fort Lauderdale does the same thing and they almost closed uh, but now there's a revival and they're coming back and uh, getting people are starting to look at it again and, uh, people are looking for entertainment but this is really entertainment and really bar theater uh, when you see guys at Smuggler's Cove I've seen it a hundred times I've seen them doing the put a little bit of cinnamon into a flaming bowl or punch bowl and it's like fourth of july fireworks it's right. like a sparkler right and you cannot help but look at it and go wow that's cool as many times as you've seen it. <laughs> and uh you look around the bartenders a guy like paul his beard would be singed that's <laughs> <laughs> true and uh you know it happens but the the idea that it's an entertainment and i think it has to be entertainment as much as just the cocktail and uh, there are very few tiki bars that I've been to uh, that are surviving at all that don't have the carvings, things to look at, things that really make you, uh, to stimulate your mind as well as the alcohol. I, I think for me, the, the whole appeal to tiki and, and with, like Ed was talking about, the revival a little bit of, of tiki is that it kind of stems back to, you know, late 1990s, early 2000 when the whole kind of um, classic cocktail revival came about, you know, and and just like anything, like people get tired of a certain type of place, and I, I think you know, in in 2000, and when everything was really kind of going big in New York, and you had you know Milk and Honey and um, Angel Share and all these speakeasies, and and you know Be Quiet, and you know um, the the cocktail is very precious and very minimalist, and um, you know riffs on old fashions in Manhattans and, and things like that and um, I think just like any cycle like people want to know what's what's next and and it seems like the next phase of the, the whole classic cocktail revival from that from 13 years ago um, is to have fun with your drinks and um, I don't know of another category of, of, of cocktails that has more fun I mean like if you put three, four uh, garnishes in a drink, that's not enough. You know, it's like <laughs> you got to keep going over the top. And there's, I mean, it's all about the presentation. And it's the other thing too that I think I really like about this whole resurgence of, of tiki mm-hmm. um, is that it's it's a communal thing. It's um, you know, we walk we walk the space a little earlier. You, there's a lot of big tables in there. There's a lot of tables for for right. six people to sit and. You taste your drink. You first of all, you look at your drink, and you're like, "Man, that, that looks crazy," and it's on fire, or it there's dry ice coming out of it, and and then you uh, you taste it, and you're like, you pass it around. You're like, "Oh, you got to taste this." Right. That's the best. And the punch bowls, the communal things, for right. sure. And then the people that are going to these bars also get involved. It's the only place that you'll walk into a bar, and half of the people there will have loud flower <laughs> shirts with tiki things on them. Uh, there are tiki organizations, uh, groups, conventions, conventions, yeah. and yeah. T- they yeah. get together. Uh, I was invited to one in, in Atlanta, 
I just happened to be near there, so I went. And the drinks were absolutely disgusting. It was in the uh, basement of the Hilton Hotel, but it was a Trader Vic's. Yeah. And, uh, well, you've been there. Yeah, it's it's horrible. The drinks are horrible. Uh, I drank beer the whole time I was there. And everybody agreed, yeah, these drinks are terrible. But look at this place. Yeah. It right. was cool. Right. It was very, so very cool. Part of the draw is just that material culture, just that right. maximalist, you know, crazy glassware and the sure. fire and... And I think, when, again, like like Ed was talking about, when you go to some of these places, like they are, they're definitely throwbacks. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're always fascinated with, like, what did our parents kind of, what were they into? And as much as you kind of shun that when you're a little younger, you get a little bit nostalgic for that. But you go to some of these places, you go to um, the Tonga Room in, in the Fairmont Hotel in, in San Francisco, and it's so bizarre because you're like, in kind of like the convention banquety space of the hotel of this really lavish opulent hotel that um, that is so formal and then you go down into this basement and you're kind of weaving around these <laughs> banquet rooms and stuff and then you see this place that has a pool in it with a band the rainstorm every <laughs> the rainstorm and a band is on is playing on a barge you know that's going up and down the pool like it's 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 pretty nuts And the, but the thing is is like um as as great as those places are like you go there and like like uh, ed alluded to is like the drinks are horrible <laughs> like you're not going there for the drinks mm-hmm. and so i think that's that's when you enter martin cape yeah certainly martin cape uh he is going to be noted as one of the people, and I don't know anybody else that's done as much for Tiki as Martin. Uh, I want to say 2004, two, no, probably 2006, I met Martin at Absinthe in San Francisco. I was doing a little presentation on uh, tea punches. Mm-hmm. There is no tea as we know tea in tea punches. It's actually petite punch, but in the Caribbean vernacular, it's tea punch. Uh, so I was making tea punches, and uh, this kind of goofy <laughs> ball-headed guy sitting in the bar <laughs> having a couple of drinks. Uh, says, oh, Mr. Hamilton, uh, I'm going to open up a tiki bar in Alameda and uh, I, would you have some time to help consult with rum lists and things? And I asked him, I said, well, what the hell are you thinking? Why are you going to open a tiki bar in Alameda? Well, it turned out to, it turned to be economics. It was the only place in the San Francisco Bay Area where he could find a bar that he could afford. Mm-hmm. What I see changes from, or separates him from, I'll use the term Trader Vic's down the street, is every bartender in his bar knows something about every rum that's on the shelf. And when I go there, it, it's almost a game. Let's stump Ed. Uh, they'll pull a bottle <laughs> off the wall and, you know, what do you know about this? <laughs> and I'll tell them what I know about it. Oh, well, that isn't what the rep said. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And But they are interested in knowing about the products. And I think the success of the Tiki Bars, the successful ones today, are educating their customers. Right. The people that are going to these things, okay, I got the shirt, uh, I've got the flowers in my hair, I've got a drink in front of me, what is it? And then, uh, obviously, you guys have mentioned a couple places you've been where the drinks aren't that great. What what separates a good one from a bad one? And what were those places not doing that 
made the drink suffer so much? Well, because, um, I mean, the original locations by uh, Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic did have fantastic drinks. Mm -hmm. But then, like with every fad, you get a bunch of imitators who are just, you know, in it to make a bunch of money. So then they start using sweet and sour mixes and, like, artificial sweeteners and it you know, basically lots of grenadine to make everything look colorful, but it tastes like crap, basically. Um, there's a few places where you can go and still taste the original versions, like uh, Tiki Tea, this tiny little bar on Sunset in, uh, in uh, LA, uh, opened by a um, Ray Buin, who was with, was he with? Don the Beachcomber. Don the Beachcomber. He was one of his head bartenders. Right, and like, you know, he took his knowledge and took it to his own bar, and his sons are carrying on the tradition. You can go there, get an amazing drink, and kind of be transported to what those original drinks tasted like. I think I think that's, that's part, I think it's twofold. I think there was, um, I think bad drinks started to happen for a couple of reasons. Obviously, Rob mentioned um, the imitators coming in and um, saying, wow, these places are really busy. I'm gonna do my own tiki bar and, and it can't be that hard. I think the other thing was rapid expansion. Um, mm -hmm. I think when, uh, when, you're, when you're doing research on tiki drinks and you're, and you're making these very um, laborious syrups, and I mean, it's, it's a very, that's the greatest part about tiki is that tiki cocktails are so culinary. Like, it, it's not, you're gonna pick four bottles that are randomly on the back of the shelf and make a, make a cocktail with it. You're gonna have to use fresh juices, you're gonna have to make exotic syrups with cinnamon and allspice, and, um, or vanilla and allspice, cinnamon and grapefruit, um, passion fruit. All these kind of things are, are very hard to make and, and very hard to get. And I think what happened was with the expansion, because it, at one time Trader Vic had 24 um, restaurants and bars around the, around the globe mm -hmm. um, operating at one time. Um, Don the Beachcomber had 16 at one point. I think that that's really hard to pull off, and that's when you start making the mixes and the pre-batched stuff, like Orgeat syrup, um, a, a staple in, in, in uh, Trader Vic's drinks. Um, what is that exactly? That's an almond syrup. So again, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's a time-consuming process that, uh, to make this, this syrup right. And you know, like some of these original drinks, um, would call for four drops of Pernod and a dash of Angostura. If you have to make 500 drinks in a night, that's the first thing that's gonna go. You're like, I don't have time to like measure drops and drops and right. to a drink. So that goes, then you lose that complexity. And suddenly the zombie is basically just a bunch of fruit juice and high proof rum in a mug. It doesn't have the original uh, flavor profile that the, uh, right. you know, the Don, uh, Don Beachcomber's version has. So Paul, maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, to that point, what what the unique challenges are to, I mean, you've been living this for a year now, like getting yeah. ready to open Three Dots in a Dash. What are the unique aspects of opening a tiki bar, running a tiki bar? I think, you know, with doing this this project, this this tiki bar, is that, you know, I wanted to to take what Martin had been, been doing and, and had done so well. Um, and try to do something on that same level here. Um, 
I think anytime you have a space as large as what we have, I mean, we we have a, a capacity of around 200 people. Um, that's a that's a large that's a large facility to try to get uh, cocktails in your hands quickly, um, but also not skimp on technique or um, things like that. So one of the big challenges was how are we going to set this room up for success? I wanted to make sure that we had a service bar in the back um, where you weren't getting distracted from guests asking, oh, what are you making? Those kind of things. Like, um, which we do have a main bar, which deals with about 75 people that we have plenty of time to talk about the drinks. Um, but for the people that are sitting at the table, they're going to have a, a bit of a different experience um, that, always, that always takes place in a cocktail bar. You're not able to talk directly one-on-one with the bartender. So with this one, I wanted to make sure that that service bar was, was very functional. Um, was, we were able to pump out a lot of good quality drinks. That was the that was the main thing because I knew the size of the place was was pretty large, uh, and the the investment was going to be a little bit higher than a smaller cocktail bar, so we had to make sure that we were able to produce those drinks. Not only that, but the thing also when you have, for instance, we have five stations at three dots and a dash. The other thing too is that you have to make sure that your staff is trained properly so that the consistency is there so it's not oh so and so is working at the bar tonight so the drinks are a little bit sweeter than than they are when so and so works i think that's that's always been some of the some of the beefs that i've had with some some cocktail bars that i've gone to is that everyone kind of has their own twist on how they do things and that's something that i don't ever want to have happen in in any of the spots that i work so um i wanted to have consistency i wanted to have the staff well trained I, I talked to Ed about this a long time ago. Is it's real easy to put 400 rums on your rum list. Um, I wanted to make sure that the staff is going to be able to talk about those those rums. And so, so, how many do you think you'll have ultimately? I think about 200. Uh, we started with about 150, and um, yeah, we're starting to find some. Uh, there's some newer distributors that are. Uh, bringing in some new, newer things and some interesting things. I think rum agricole as a as a category has really kind of uh, taken off. Um, I know Ed will Ed is uh, helping fight that that battle, um, <laughs> but I think it's I think it's something that's really interesting because we've had so many um, kind of bland flavored rums for so long that now we're starting to get these fuller flavored these um, these better rums, better quality rums coming in. Again, you can go to a great tiki bar in Halakahiki and, uh, and get a really good beer. Um, and it's a, it's a, I mean, as Martin said, he goes, that place is a museum for Whitco. Um, he said, I, I've never seen a place that has more Whitco uh, furnishings in there than, than Halakahiki out in River Grove. Um, but yeah, you're not going there for the cocktail. So I think the, the thing was with, with what Giuseppe did in New York and what Martin did in in uh, in San Francisco, was kind of sparked our fire a little bit to say, okay, they're doing some cool stuff with tiki drinks. Why don't we, why don't we do a little bit? And then you start seeing, you know, what what I did at the Whistler, and then well, um, that that really cemented it for me that it was going to come and work in Chicago. The interest, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy. We transported. I mean, we transformed the, the not only the menu, and it was so much prep to do for that one night, but. 
you couldn't get in at a certain point. It was right. so packed. It was it was like our it was our busiest. Uh, those were our busiest nights. There's a pent up demand. There's a pent up yeah, demand. People got to wear those flowered shirts right. somewhere. You and can't I, wear them to church. Well, I think that's interesting. That it sounds like they're the the fan base has never gone away. No. Even though the establishments have taken their businesses, you know, they, they've approached their businesses maybe not in the best way, and that's they've suffered for that reason. But it sounds like the fan base. It has never gone away. Do you think for people who aren't so familiar with it, it'll be the the precision of the cocktails that is their point of entry? Like, what do you think is going to draw that person who maybe hasn't been, you know, I think, immersed in the scene before? I think the, the one thing that I really want to do with Three Dots and a Dash is, is to just make it fun for everybody. Um, it's very easy to, to have something that's exclusive, um, and sometimes these these fancy cocktail bars can be exclusive. And pretentious. Oh, who do you who do you know? And and you can't be on your cell phone. And mm-hmm. you know you, you if you want to add a person to your party, that can't happen. You know we we have to be noted at, noted notified ahead of time. Um, so I think what Tiki does is it, it throws all that out of the window and it becomes very inclusionary. So it's like you want to wear shorts and, and, and flip flops. By all means, but you might be sitting next to somebody who's dolled up for the night, you know, like in a in a cocktail dress. They may be going to another restaurant or a nightclub around here. Um, so I want it to be a, 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 it sounds corny, but kind of a melting pot of like sure. a bunch of different people, not just the, the people that are into cocktails or into tiki. Or I want them to come and check out the mugs, whether they, whether they purchase them or, or just get their drinks put in the mugs. I want it to be a special night that we can have, like a, a Monday, Tuesday, or something like that. That's a little bit typically slower, and launch a new mug or a swizzle stick or all these kind of fun little little things that we can have. We we toured this space a little bit earlier. Maybe you could just kind of describe it in your own words. What, what we what were you going for? What are some interesting aspects of I, of the space? I think the thing was is that um, you know we wanted to create a couple of different spaces within this this large space. So how do you break it up a little bit? We do have a little bit of a, um, a smaller area right off the entry that can accommodate parties for 20, 25 people. If you want to have a sit down dinner, if you want to have a private um, event or just like a pre-function area, um, that's, that's pretty interesting. And you guys didn't get a chance to see it all uh, furnished yet, but it's going to have a different feel in the main room and then you have the main room um, where I think immediately you're drawn to the bar you're drawn to this bar that has this beautiful uh, onyx bar top white onyx bar top the bar top just kind of pops and it's not lit underneath or anything like that but it's um, it really kind of forces you to kind of put your your, your eyes there um, and then the the other thing that, that I think a lot of when you're designing a space is um, you want to you want to see for for me when it's about a restaurant it's not necessarily just about looking around at the at the surroundings of the restaurant but it's about looking at the food so for me it was like this great kind of blank canvas to to put a really cool mug on the on the table and have uh, and have that be the, like the focus and then, of course, we have the, the service bar area, which has a little area that you can um, come back. And there's a little drink rail, and uh, that's our kitchen table, if you will. It's the kitchen drink rail. Um, you can stand and, and kind of watch the bartenders work. And 
um, pump out drinks for yeah. uh, 125 people in the back. Tell us a little bit about these mugs, because I'm looking at one right now. Yeah, yeah. And it looks like it has your face on it. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. So these are these are these are fantastic mugs that um, my wife Shelby had uh, designed. So she, uh, it starts with a sketch, and then we work with uh, Holden Westland at uh, Tiki Farm, and uh, he takes the sketch and then farms it out to a sculptor, and uh, finds the best sculptor for the aesthetic. And um, we had a lot of fun with these, and we have four to start with. We're gonna we're gonna not release them all at once. We're gonna release them um, a little bit at a time. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we we had a lot of fun with it. We we wanted a, a little bit of the whimsy of of tiki, but we also wanted some of the glamour. Um, where we're looking at one right now that is a gold dipped bamboo uh, stalk that um, that you can drink out of and. Um, and what drink is going to be served in that? So here's the best part about the drink process there. Um, none of the drinks have specific glasses, with the exception of a couple. Okay. Um, so when a party, say a party of six comes in and they all want Mai Tais, they're all going to come in different glasses. I think it makes it a little bit more uh, interesting and exciting. You never really want to see just like um, six of the same glasses go out so we encourage the bartenders to just randomly grab six different glasses and if um so that it, it has variation on the table well, why don't you talk a little bit about your debut menu like what can we what can we expect yeah so i mean i think uh you know we we have it broken down into two sections we have uh, or actually three sections really we have uh one for large format drinks so we have four large format drinks that are perfect for sharing um i think that's another for me, that's a great opportunity to have somebody have a tiki drink that normally would probably order a round of shots. So again, if you have a bachelorette party or a, a party of eight to eight to ten, um, what better way to get them started than this big communal drink that has all these straws sticking out? And maybe it's on fire. Maybe it's got a a boat in the middle of it and stuff. Um, than just your traditional shots. Um, I heard a rumor that you have your staff carving. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, we're we we're, we're having battles, a train fruit, <laughs> a training class on 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 tiki garnishes and stuff like that, and and again, like I tell them that, you know, there's there's no such thing as too many garnishes on <laughs> on a drink. So, um, yeah, so there's the large formats for for sharing. Um, I think that's going to be a really nice uh, way to settle in if you do have a, a, a large party. You don't necessarily want to wait 15 minutes for 10 different drinks to come out. Start them off with a large punch style uh, drink we are going to have um, the other two sections are going to be classics and um, originals or modern interpretations of classics my my background has always been classics driven so if I ever make a, an original cocktail it it might not be all that <laughs> all that original it's going to be a riff on on another classic but that being said there's a lot of new ingredients that are available to us I'm going to use a lot of um, shrubs and, and drinking vinegars. I love the ones from Pock Pock, and they're they're always uh, coming up with different uh, flavors for their restaurants and, and things. So, uh, eight classics, eight eight modern or original. Um, I think you're definitely going to see a mai tai on the menu. I think that um, yeah, I 
you have you you wouldn't be a tiki not only not only do you <laughs> not only do you have to have it but i think again i keep going back to that experience that i had at trader vicks in 98 was like I've been having so many bad Mai Tais. You have the first good one. The first good one, you're like, amazing. oh, wow, this drink is not overly sweet. It's actually got a nice little tartness to it. So um, that's one thing that I want to, if I want to accomplish here, is to create well-balanced drinks that have a, a myriad of, of spirits in them and to kind of take some of that uh, preconceived notions away of like, oh, it's going to be a sugar bomb. Yeah, there, there is sweetness in every drink, especially if it has citrus in it. You have to balance the citrus, so. Um, but it doesn't have to be in copious amounts. Our Tiki Symposium was produced by Roger Kamholtz. The music you're listening to is from a modern ensemble called Mr. Ho's Orchestratica. And if you dig it, check them out at orchestratica.com, where you can get six tracks free by joining their mailing list. They're currently recording the third record in their Exotica for Modern Living series. You can pre-order that at pledgemusic.com orchestratica. Check it out. It's pretty cool. I'll have all the direct links at skyfullofbacon.com. Mike Mills was a guy who owned a tavern in a small Illinois town near the Kentucky border, Murfreesboro, population 8,000. A friend suggested entering the world of competitive barbecue as a way to boost traffic at the bar. Six years later, Mills was co-captain of the only team ever to win the World Barbecue Championship at Memphis in May three times, and he's gone on to open a restaurant in Vegas, partner with Danny Meyer on New York's Blue Smoke, and run an international barbecue consulting business with his daughter, Amy. And he's in the new Skyful of Bacon video podcast, Wood Smoke Nation, in which I follow the teams in Murfreesboro's annual Praise the Lard competition. I interviewed Mike Mills for the video for nearly an hour, and of course only a small part of that is in the final film. So here we fill in the rest of his story, beginning with talking about what style of barbecue is common to a place like Murfreesboro, which lies between several major barbecue capitals, including Memphis and Kansas City. You know, I didn't know for years that there were different regions of barbecue, you know, like the Memphis style, or the Kansas City style, or the Carolinas, or Texas. I did not realize that. I would refer to the barbecue sauce that we use as a combination of all of them. I always refer to it as a, a sauce that would penetrate, go into the meat and, you know, add, complement the flavor of the meat, but not overpower it. I refer to it as a southern sauce, because it, then later on in life I found out that it hasn't incorporated all of the flavors of the different regions, because it has mustard in it. It has vinegar in it from the, Car like the Carolina sauce. It has ketchup in it, you know, like from the Kansas City. It has sugar in it you know, to, to sweeten it up. So it's kind of a, a, a multi-purpose, never designed to be that way, knowing 
because this sauce was actually been in my family for over a hundred years. Oh, okay. And, you know, it was passed down from my uh, great-grandmother. My dad was a salesman on the road, and his favorite hobby was to cook outside and barbecue. He never owned a barbecue pit because he always made it his own, either using concrete blocks or digging a hole in the ground, setting up some stones, and, you know, a uh, I grade across that and maybe some tin stacked around, but as far as a commercial made barbecue pit, he never had one. What did he cook? My dad would cook whole hogs. My dad, my family came from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and my, bro my two older brothers, in the summertime, they ran a barbecue stand at a, uh, uh, what they call Kappa Hall Park at the swimming pool. In the wintertime, they had a little concession stand at the bowling alley. And he would cook barbecue. He cooked shoulders, whole hogs, and one of his favorite things to do was cook ribs. And the style of barbecue that he did, that was pretty typical for this area? Actually, the style of barbecue that he did, I would say, would be what you would call a southern style. I'm going to say it was a dry meat, not dry of moisture, but a seasoning put on it. You know, it grilled or over an open fire burn off the coals, shovel those underneath it, and have a dry meat, and then you made the sandwich and or ate it or put it on a plate, and then added the sauce to it. So that wasn't so typical around here? That wasn't typical around this area oh. right here. The influence from this area right here comes out of the south. I'm gonna tell you, it's a Memphis style. Do people come in wanting more of that kind of tomatoey, thicker sauce? If they're from a different region, you know, like if they're used in the Kansas City area, if they're used to sweeter, you know, the molasses or the uh, the honey flavor, they'll sometimes ask, you know, and of course I'll explain to them about the sauce. They have it, they always seem to be able to enjoy it. But a sauce is a very regional type thing. I just like a thinner sauce and think that it does more flavor. It, you know, it's one of those things, there's no right or wrong. If it works for you, your friends, and your family, then it's perfect. You, a barbecue guy just actually said if there's no right or wrong and didn't didn't immediately attack the others from his, <laughs> what he grew up on? <laughs> well, you know, that's what's amazing about barbecue because it may not be exactly what you're accustomed to, but yet you can enjoy it so much. And normally your love for the regional barbecue sauce is where you cut your teeth on it. So that starts pretty early in life a lot of times. One of the biggest thrills that I get out of, as the highest compliment in the world is, when somebody comes in, I'm gonna say that they're from the Carolinas or from Memphis, and they come in and say, you know, I really enjoyed the food here. You know, it took me back and gave me a remembrance of when my grandfather used to take me uh, to this little hole-in-the-wall place and, and have a barbecue. I brought back a memory. I will never beat Grandma's apple pie. I will never beat where they cut their, their or be better than where they cut their, originally cut their teeth on barbecue. But if I can get, bring back a memory and or get that compliment, I feel like I've done my job. My goal in life is to have enough people cut their teeth on my barbecue 
that I become the standard bearer. And I think it, no matter what region you're in, I always say, if, again, and I repeat it, if it works for you, your friends, your family, and or your customers, then it's perfect. You know, Murphy's Bros had the barbecue place and the, the very well known, and it was ran by a black family down in what they called the flats. And they were very well known for their barbecue, and it was a southern style barbecue. They had a concrete block pit with tin around it. What, what was the, the kind of racial situation at the time? Did white people go have barbecue down there regularly, or? Well, you know, the racial situation in Murfreesboro has not ever been a, you know, I'm going to say a black society and a white society, uh, that type thing. It's always been, you know, respect on both sides, and I'll say as a kid growing up, and I mean, I had no problem in going in their neighborhood, so to speak, or them coming in our neighborhood. Uh, I respected both, you know, Mr. Witt, his son, his wife, uh, I got to know them, felt very comfortable. Like I say, racial has not always been a, a big thing in, in Murfreesboro, Illinois. And he was a great barbecue. One of the great things, he had a tremendous business that came over from Southern Illinois University, which is five miles away. And they came over because he served the biggest plate of french fries you have ever seen in your life. And of course, you know, they cut their own potatoes. And I don't know that they ever changed the oil because it's the same oil that they would fry their fish in because you'd always find a little of the uh, cornmeal and everything else that was intermixed on it. But the fries were great, very greasy, uh, but the, you know, he put enough salt on there, the right amount of salt, that uh, you just couldn't wait to get another one and you got a heaping plate full. His barbecue was second to none. 17th Street used to be, it was originally built back in the early 1900s by a gentleman by the name of Ellis. And what he had, it was a, uh, it was a hangout for the railroad workers. And they served a barbecue. It was a sliced barbecue, and they also served a little quarter pound hamburger. And that was all you could get, that's all they had, very simple. You had mustard, onion, and pickle on the burger. But they were awesome, they were great because it was fresh ground meat every day. The barbecue, they had a big, they had a barbecue pit built in, built out of concrete blocks. And of course you could smell that, but people came in there for the barbecue. Uh, it was the first place that they had that, that uh, had a drive-through. And there, people would come there, they wouldn't come in be, a lot of times because it was a bar and they served alcohol. But it, it sure comes through the drive-through you know, that was also selling alcohol, but they didn't have to see it or be in the building to get the barbecue because it was that good. In 1985, I purchased the, uh, uh, Ellis's barbecue, and I ran it as a bar the same as they did, and I still had a little sliced barbecue and a little quarter pound hamburger that was had a little grill, 18 inch grill, and that's where I would warm it up. Later on, uh, I, in 1994, I decided to expand it after having a barbecue team. And I decided I'd get out of the bar business and 
get into the food business. And since that period of time, you know, I feel like that I've been blessed, you know, to, to be able to have 17th Street. I changed the name of it from what it was because it was on 17th Street. <laughs> You are the owner of a small town barbecue spot, but you're also a New York restaurateur. How did that happen? One of the judges that judged us in one of the world contests had a friend in New York City. His name happened to be Danny Meyer, who is one of the most respected uh, restaurateurs in the world. And he was on him about, you know, you need to take a look at this. This will be a good concept for you. And little did he know, and that's what he called it, was a concept. And barbecue is not a concept, it's a culture. And anyway, we ended up meeting each other. And he came down, he ate the food, really enjoyed it. And got back and thought, I want to do that. So then he asked me to come and consult with him. And they, today, uh, the first restaurant was 10 years ago. Actually, it was 11 years ago. And they have, I think there's seven of them now in the New York area called Blue Smoke. Did people in New York, did they like the barbecue? I mean, did they relate to it? Did it, you know, did they have other ideas of what barbecue should be? You know, that's always been a big question. And can you cook barbecue? in New York and it be authentic. Now most of the people probably are born and raised in New York and stay within that area. But barbecue, New York is a mixture of people from, I'm gonna tell you, all over the world. I don't know of very many people that do not like something from the barbecue pit and or the grill. And my theory has always been, why not? Whenever I went there and originally helped put this restaurant in and consulting with them, there were a couple of little small barbecue places, you know, out in the boroughs, but there was nothing in Manhattan at all. And when they put this in, I mean, it was a big deal. There are probably 30 or more major barbecue places in New York today. It's just phenomenal what has happened in the barbecue world there. And yeah, they got awesome barbecue. Blue Smoke has great barbecue. You know, you have Hill Country. There's just, there's barbecue everywhere. It's become, you know, bar they were known for pizza. They were noted for a lot of different ethnic foods because I think that they have ever ethnic background in New York. There's just thousands and thousands of uh, restaurants there. But yes, I'm, you know, and it's, it's phenomenal. The other part about it is I go there every year, they have what they call the Big Apple Block Party. And hundreds of thousands of people show up for these two days to eat this barbecue. There's 25 pitmasters from around the country, different regions come in there to cook. They block off uh, Union Square uh, Park and block off Madison Avenue and these people just come out. And what I love about it the most, I don't know if you know anything about a beehive, but in order to make the bees docile so you can work with them, you smoke the hive, and they become very, you know, laid back, very docile. 
because the pace of New York is the click of the heels and the honking of the horns and the movement of the traffic. When that barbecue gets in there, they all slow down and smell the roses. They're smelling the wood. As the sun sinks slowly in the west, thanks for joining us, I can actually say us this time, for another episode of Airwaves Full of Bacon. If you liked it, please help me spread the word by tweeting it, Facebooking it, whatever you do. Thanks to our guests this week, Lisa Seamus and Jason Kessler for taking my calls, Roger Kamholtz and his guests Paul McGee, Rob Christopher, and Ed Hamilton, and Mike Mills of 17th Street Bar and Grill in Murfreesboro. Thanks to Brian O'Neill of Orchestronica for letting us use their music, the theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Links for all kinds of things are at skyfullofbacon.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe at iTunes. I'll have more in a few weeks. This was episode three.